Well, this morning, we want to welcome you. If you're new, you are new, thank you for joining us at Joliet First Church. It has been an amazing week in the life of our church. Uh, last week, we, we, we said that we want to be a people who are, who are sent, and we want to be a people who invest. And last week, 30 of you decided that after church, you would take time out of your busy weekend to join us in our canvassing community event weekend, where we went around in our community, went to our neighborhoods directly across the street and just up the street. And we knocked on doors and we said, what is it that we can do for you that you can't do for yourself? And it's amazing the response that we got from people. Initially, people looked at us like, what are you trying to, to sell me? Are you guys like Mormons? I mean, like, what are you guys, what are you here for? You know, and, and then they began to realize that when we were just offering our help to people, the barriers were, were broken. And I said this to our board this week. We read, we read a poem from Wendell Berry that talked about mystery. And anything that, that is endowed with mystery is worthy of love. And we want to be a people whose lives are filled with mystery. When people look at us and say, my goodness, there's something interesting about those people. Why would they show up at my door and just offer to help me? And believe it or not, we had enough response from people that we have projects to last throughout the summer. And so now that we have the projects within our community, where we, we can be the face of Christ to the world, I need you to go online and to register for those events. As you, as you click on the registration form, you'll see a drop-down box that, talks, that shows you all of the things that we have within our community. And as we said, we'll be going out bi-weekly. And, 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 the, and the teams that are required only re- require two or three here or there. It doesn't require all of us. So you may serve once this summer, but the point is is that we have people from this church going out every other week into our community. The other thing that I want to celebrate is it was a busy weekend last weekend, but the other thing I want to celebrate is our opening of our Hope Closet. We have some new ladies in our church, new to the faith, who have said that we want to give back. And they've opened a closet that, that allows moms and fathers to come in and get clothes for their kids at no cost to them. What a beautiful picture. Last week, we served seven families. (laughs) I just want to thank you, church, for being a church that says, I will do whatever God asked us to do. So thank you for that. Give yourselves a hand. Well, this morning, we are in our final series, Mission. We're in our final installment of our series, Mission, this morning. Next week, we'll begin a new series about group and, and the importance of small groups. But if you haven't been with us over the last four weeks, let me catch you up quickly. The first week, we said, well, we said this, that at Juliet First, if you're new here, it is our goal to become a community of hope. And we, we've looked at scriptures and we see that God says to the farmers to leave the edges of their field for the community around them, for the widow, for the poor, for the foreigner, and the orphan. And, and he tells them to leave the edges of the field so that they might glean the, the edges of the field. from the, And so we're asking at this church, what does it look like for us to become the edge to, for our community? At Joliet First, we're attempting to make Joliet First. The community around us is our mission field. And so our board gathered together over, over a major planning session. We had lots of prayer and we had lots of discussion. And we said that, that in order to become a community of hope, we had to... to to have some markers or some principles that would guide us toward that very mission of becoming a people of hope. And so we said that we will seek, we will invest, we will restore, and we will send. And so in our first week, we discovered that we must seek God and his kingdom with everything that we have. 
And we said that whatever you seek will become the center of who you are. And we looked at King Rehoboam, and it said that he did evil because his heart was not set on seeking the Lord. And we, we, we truly believe that when we are not seeking the Lord, that, that inherently we turn to our own selfish ambition. And we learn that this word zeteo, this word seek, literally means to restore the relationship. But it also means to be on the lookout for. That there are kingdom moments in our lives daily that we have to be on the lookout for where we might be the face of Christ to the world. And so we said that we must seek God so we can seek those who are seeking him. That's what we said in week one. Week two, John, Pastor John came to you and he talked about the value of send. And what I love what he said to you that morning is he said that we need to quit referring to missionaries in the third person. But rather, if you consider yourself a Christian, you are a missionary. I love that thought. The last week we talked about investing. And we said that we, when we willingly bring and invest as a community, we will experience God's best. And we, we, we saw a picture of a community of people in Exodus who bring their, their, their willingness, their time, their talents, their gifts, and their ability to teach others. And we learned that it wasn't just about their time and their skill, but at the root of every single one of those words, it was about their heart. And we said that your investment is only as good as the groundwork of your heart. And so we define investment as a faithful anticipation of God's intentions. Now, I want you to remember that, that Invest is a faithful anticipation of God's intention. Because this morning we're looking at this idea of restore and they're linked together. So, I need you to say it with me. Because I know as a church we can hear it, but it's better if we say it together. That at Joliet first we're going to seek God with everything that we have. We will invest our time, our money, our resources and the gifts that God has given us. With the idea that we will right, to the image or to the person that God has called them to be so they might be sent or sent to the world. I love it. I love it. Would you pray for me as we begin this next part of our series? Lord, your message is profound. It's simple and it's profound. And so this morning I ask that you open our minds and our hearts to what you would teach us. Would you help us see what is required in the process? of Restore. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I have weekly confessions with our congregation, and so this morning I have to confess to you that I love HGTV. Can some of you guess what my favorite show might be? Chip and Joanne, Fixer Upper, that's right. I love Fixer Upper. I also love Flip or Flop. I also love Rehab Addict, and I also love, I love the show Love It or List It. Those are some of my favorite shows, and and I know, men, some of you are in here, you're saying today, listen, uh, the fact that you did that in front of everybody, we need to take your man card. But, but I'm wearing pink, and the fact that I admitted to you that I love HGTV, I think, makes me a man this morning, don't you? <laughs> okay, maybe not. But what I love about HGTV is the sentiment that's behind all of the shows. In HGTV, they see what could be and not what is current. And, and, and if you've been in my office and you've sat at my desk, you'll see this, this card that sits on my desk when Dr. McCain, when I was interviewing at, at the church here, and when Dr. McCain was talking with me, and I was thinking about whether we wanted to come here or not, Dr. McCain said, you have to see what could be and not what is currently. And I, and I, and I placed that on my desk, and, and it says, see people for who they could be, not for who they are currently. 
And so that's what I love about this idea with HGTV that, that this is, these are a group of people who are taking things that are abused and broken and give it, and they give it an artistic beauty. They take things that have been abandoned and estranged and they've been left to sit on the wayside and they're given purpose and fulfillment. The whole idea behind this network is that we take houses, landscapes, gardens, and yards, and we take them from death to life. And I think that HGTV in itself serves as a modern metaphor for the thematic characteristics that we see of the person that we call God, and we see that in the life of, of Jesus. You see, I believe at the heart of that network and at the heart of the God we serve is this amazing word, restore. And the whole point of restore is that we begin to reestablish, that we reinvest. And, I, and the point of reestablishing is this, is that as we work toward reestablishing something, that something has already been established at some point. In other words, it has already served a purpose in the past. And so the whole point of restore is that we, we take something back to what it was intentionally designed to be, that we restore to its original intent and design. And that's literally what the, what the scriptures we see this morning in Hebrew, the word restore literally means to, to make a beeline back to the points that we left, that we once departed. And so I want us to think about this this morning. This is the idea that I want to work with, that restore is a fulfilled announcement of God's action. You see, last week we said that invest is a faithful anticipation of God's intention. But today we want to say that restore, that as God works in the life, as, as he invests in his people, and as we as his Christians walk alongside other people and help them, that there would be not only a faithful anticipation, that, but we would move to a fulfilled announcement of God's saving action in the world. Are you with me on this this morning? So this morning we're going to look at Second Kings, we're going to look at a story. Many of you are familiar with this story but we're going to look at three characters within this story that teach us and give us a lesson about, about the movement, the rhythm, rhythms, and the process of restoration. So this morning, if you would turn to 2 Kings chapter, chapter 5. It says, Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Rome. He was a valiant soldier, but the problem was he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Arad had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl uh, from Israel had said. By all means, the king said, go. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robe in anguish and he says, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a fight with me? 
when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that that there was a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, I love this, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and then your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, surely I thought this man would do some hocus-pocus magical stuff and he would come out and he would, he would call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot and cure my leprosy. And then he says, aren't the rivers that, that I live near, aren't they enough to make me clean? Why do I have to wash in the rivers of Israel? So he turned off and went in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet has told you to do something great, uh, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And the man of God, God have told him, and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, I love this. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. From the get-go, what sticks out to me in this story is Naaman, obviously. Naaman arrives on the scene and and he's expecting that Elisha will will do this magical prayer that he will wave his hand over his his problems and poof, he'll be gone. And so Naaman is expecting something. In fact, when when Elisha tells him to go wash himself in in, in the river Jordan seven times, he says, what's wrong with, with, with the rivers that I live nearby? Why can't they restore me? And so Naaman wants restoration the way he wants it. And here's what I want you to know this morning when we look at the life of Naaman that the investment required the investment required to restore somebody often seems unreasonable. That the request that the investment required to restore somebody often appears unreasonable. I mean, we have really adopted the HGTV mentality of the Christian faith. I mean, think about this, my favorite show, Chip and Joanne, right? They see this house, it's dilapidated, it's lacking curb appeal, it's broken, it's ugly, it looks like it hasn't been lived in for years. But then they come in, in a matter of minutes, in a matter of like 30 minutes, they turn it into this modern shiplap-filled masterpiece that makes you want to move to Waco, Texas. Right? And instantly, restoration is a matter of minutes. This is what Naaman wants. I want restoration. I want it now. But what we don't see in HGTV is the amount of hours, the amount of sweat, the, all, the, all the minds that have come together for the planning. We don't see the amount of people, the community that it takes to restore the building or the house back to what we see at the final end in a matter of 30 minutes. This is a problem for the church. This is a problem for us today. We have people that are new in their faith. We have people that are coming to Christ and saying yes to the eternal life. Not only in the life to come, but the life here and now. But we have seasoned Christians. I'm talking to my seasoned Christians. We have seasoned Christians who are unwilling to work. 
you see, they have expected, we are expecting that, that people will all of a sudden have this poof. They say yes to God, and oh, you said yes to God today? Oh, great, we'll expect that you put the bottle down. Oh, God has entered your life? Great, we'll take the needle out of your arm. Right? These are things that we expect from people. And we expect that all of a sudden they'll just come to Christ and guess what? You can show up at church on Sunday. You'll have to deal with delicate situations very kindly. And we, we expect that you put on a smile and pretend that everything's okay. And we want beauty in a matter of minutes. But what I want you to hear this morning and what we learn about the life of Naaman is that restoration... Moving people to where God has created them to be takes time. It takes work. Or excuse me, it takes work. It takes time. It takes a tribe. It takes a community of people to invest in the life of those people. And often, often it's messy. Which leads me to my next point. That if we want to be part of the process of moving people into the image of God, we have to earn the right. You see, we have to have the right before we can speak into the life. And to have the right, you have to have a relationship. You see, restoration requires a relationship with people. I love it. I think back to Indiana. We had a board meeting one night in this church over in Port Matters about, you know, the proximity of which people were smoking in the distance of the church. It was like, you know, that was the important thing at the time. And we had a guy who said about a new person in the faith, I I just want to go to him and tell him that smoking is wrong for him. And I'm sorry, but I was righteously angry. That happens every once in a while. And I said to him, I said, I'm sorry. Have you earned the right to speak in his life? Do you have the relationship with him to walk up and tell him what you want to tell him? You see, often I think we want to pull the plank out of people's eyes, but yet we aren't equipped with the tools to do so. Which brings me to the next point that I think often we discount God's grace in the whole situation. You saw, I firmly believe that God's grace holds his people accountable. In other words, as God's love and his mercy meets us in a brokenness, he graciously and sometimes painfully makes us aware of those things that are in desperate need of repair. And so I believe that with, with, with a little bit of our work and God's grace, we can do amazing things. So we learn from Naaman that restoration requires a huge amount of effort. And often it seems unreasonable. Let's, let's pick up the story in verse, uh, verse 20. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, I love it, My master was too easy on Naaman, their man by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Oh, everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please get them a talent and silver and two sets of clothing. Well, Naaman says, by all means, take the two talents. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver and two bags and and, and two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. 
when Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and he put them away in his house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Uh, Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to set clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male or female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous, leprous and it became white as snow. Some of us are Naamans this morning, but some of us are also Gehazis. And here's what I mean, that often in the life of the church, when we invest in something, we, we, we have strings attached to that investment. We use qualifiers in the church that, like this, that I'll give to you as long as you. I will help you if you promise that you will. I'll pour my life into if you will give. Right? I'm a little fearful to give to you a need because maybe your need isn't actually a need. Maybe if I give to you, I'm a little fearful because I'm enabling you. And sometimes the people that we pour into are the ones that walk away from us. And we get really upset and we just like, whatever, that's fine. Can I just say that is one of the greatest frustrations I have as a pastor, at least in the past. I've invested, some of the people that I invest most of my time in are sometimes the people that will walk away. And that hurts. And it's painful. And it's frustrating. Because I didn't get what I wanted out of the relationship. But the difference between myself and God is that God gives graciously at no cost to you. That His love is poured out on you at no cost to you. We don't serve a God who's playing games. We don't serve a God that says, I'll give to you if you... We don't serve a God that that his investment comes with strings attached. Rather, he has severed the strings of sin and bondage, and we are entangled in his forgiveness and his mercy and his love. We, We see a God that restores and expects nothing in return. That's what we learned about Gehazi. When we restore people... We should expect nothing in return. This is what mercy is. It's given to you with no expectations whatsoever. So we serve a God who restores and never expects in return. The last, the last character I want to look at this story is, and this is a short one, is at the very beginning of the, of the text in verse 2. Now bands of rape from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, I want you to hear this. I'm just going to say it up front so you get the point of what I'm trying to say. And this is this thing. God's saving work of restoration begins with a servant. Not the Naamans. Not the Gehazis. It begins, God's restoration work begins with the servant. Now, I have to dig in for just a minute here. Because these words, she served. (laughs) 
translated hayapene, actually brings two major ideas together. Now listen to this. Stick with me here. This word pene literally means the surface of, the appearance of, or the face of, the facial features of. And this other word, haya, literally is a title given to God that represents his presence, it represents his compassion, it represents relationship that he has with his people. So quite literally, we miss it if we just read it in the English language. All we see is that she served. What it's saying is that this young girl became the face of God to the enemy. That God can use a servant, a little girl, to do his work. I have to give image to this this morning, and I'm thinking back once again to Indiana where we had a new guy who was an alcoholic, he, he suffered from depression, and he was a cutter. And I remember he came to Christ, and people were expecting him to get it right, right away. But he had a good relationship with somebody in the church. And so one night, when he was drunk, he, he, he was depressed, and he began to cut his legs. He was cut his legs, and I mean massive scars. And you know when you drink alcohol, it thins the blood. And so this member of our church got a phone call. And it was from his daughter, who was in my youth group at the time. And she asked him to come over because her father was standing in a pool of blood. So this member of our church, at three in the morning, comes over to the house. He consoles the daughter. He sends her back to her room and says, I'll take care of it. Now imagine this. On a dark night, this man gets to his knees, pulls out a towel, and begins to address the wounds of this drunken man. He wipes the blood off his legs. He cleans the blood up off of the floor. And in that moment, in my mind as I picture this, I see the face of God to a brother in need. This is what it means for us to be servants. That we become the face of God to those around us. So the question I have for you this morning is this. Are you Naaman who is expecting the restoration process to happen in minutes? Are you a Gehazi who expects that your investment comes with strings attached? Or are you a servant? You see, it's when we become servants to the other that we begin to mentor, to teach, and to image what it means to be loved and restored by God who has created us in the image that he calls good. This is the whole point of restoration. We return to the point that we once previously left in the garden. That we become good. So here's what I want you to know this morning. If, if you've fallen asleep or you're not with us this morning, tap your neighbor and say, wake up. The pastor's going to say something important. Yeah, tell him. I hear you now. Wake up. The pastor's going to say something important. I truly believe this today. I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. In fact, as I was writing over here, it was almost as God was saying to me, do you believe what you're about to preach? Whoa, that's convicting. Here's what I want you to know. God sees you for who he created you to be. God sees you for who he created you to be. 
And not only that, but God calls us to become what he calls us to be. You see, this is what we see in the life of Naaman. Naaman's life became a testament to the world around him of what God can do in people's lives. But it took a community to get us there. It took God seeing Naaman for who he created him be. It took this servant girl to, to see what could be. It took Elisha's investment and his faithful anticipation and his work to see when God restores, there's a fulfilled announcement so Naaman can stand before all people and say, God is God and everyone else is not. It takes a community of people to restore broken people. And any time that we come together as a community, we are bearing the image of God. See, the problem this morning is this, is that some of you, some of you don't see yourself for who God created you to be. There are some of you who don't see God in a way that he sees you that he created you to be. See, what you see is, is that you think God sees you who are a failure. You think you see God who, you think God sees you as the person who, who deals and struggles with, with doubts and fears about who he is. You think God sees you as, as the one who is filled with sin and you are broken. But let me tell you this morning. God's restoring work in your life is about making you new. And that's what he sees you for. I love it in Corinthians. He says, he says this, he says, if you are in Christ, then you are a new creation. A new creation has come. The old has gone. The new has come. Do you understand this this morning? That whether you see it or not, the new creation is already inside of you. You just have to recognize it. You see, you're so busy seeing God for how you think he sees you currently that you can't see God for who he sees you or who he has created you to be. Boy, this is a really hard thought, I suppose. But, but when we begin to accept that God has created us, he has intended us for something else other than what we are living, we begin to experience the new life that he talks about. So this morning, I'm going to invite you this morning, if you are in need of, of restoration, if you are needing to be restored, I want you to know that there's a God who comes with no strings attached. And His grace, and His mercy, and His love, and His understanding, and His relationship is at no cost to you. It's at no cost to you. Now I need to talk to my people who, who think they have arrived. I need to talk to my people who, have, who think they, they have become what God has called them to be. If you have become what God has called you to be, then it is your responsibility to begin to see others, not for who they are currently, but for who they could be. If you have arrived in this Christian perfection, this Christian life, then you, my friends, need to begin to see others for the people that God has created them to be. And it takes work. It takes time. It's messy. It's ugly. It takes investment. I want to close with this story. 
back in Indiana, and all of it happened in Indiana, I suppose. I had a young lady by the name of Sarah. Some of you have heard me talk about Sarah. In fact, somebody asked me last week, Pastor, are you talking about leaders producing fruit? What fruit have you produced? Good question. But I remember when we showed up in Indiana, there was a young girl by the name of Sarah, and everybody warned us about Sarah. Sarah's a little bit crazy. She claims to be an atheist. She doesn't, she doesn't believe in God. And she got kind of pushed to the wayside in the past. And Janelle and I said, I don't, I don't think this is what God wants for his people. And so we decided that over the course of our time there, we would, we would, we would build a relationship with her. And often our relationship with her meant us simply listening. You see, to teach somebody, to mentor somebody, doesn't require you to talk. It simply requires you to listen and to understand where they're coming from. And so we began a dialogue with Sarah, and, and, and she was basically saying, I don't believe in God, and I'm an atheist. And, and we were getting ready to discuss some difficult things in our youth group. And I said to Sarah, I said, what would you think about actually teaching a class for us? Whoa, having an atheist teach a Christian class, that's pretty awesome. One of the most radical things I've ever done. But the conversation was great. And I remember there were long nights that we spent with Sarah trying to understand what is it that you're doing? What is your problem? But we were patient. We were present. We were faithful. And I believe that Janelle and I did our best to become the face of God to her. And here's the best part. When we left and a new youth pastor came in, (laughs) she found God. And now she's about to be married to this youth pastor in the fall. So we have Sarah the atheist who doesn't believe in God all of a sudden becomes a Christian who's marrying a youth pastor. And oh, by the way, I get to do the wedding in October. It's exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, as a community of hope, we have to see what could be. This is why we invest in the people around us. This is why we go out into our neighborhoods and say, what is it that we can do for you? Because we believe that one simple act of mystery, one simple act of restoration can be based that somebody needs in that moment. Let me pray for you. Actually, let me, let me do this. This morning we're going to respond. If my, my folks who are serving communion this morning could come up. And if you're unable to, to come forward, uh, just raise your hand and we'll come out and meet you where you are. But this morning, I don't want us to see communion as a formality. You can start serving people. That's fine. I don't want us to see communion as a formality. I don't want us to see it something that just, just something we do every other week. But hear me this morning. If you're broken, if you are in need of God's redemptive love, may this be your response. May you come this morning and receive the love of Christ. May you you accept something that has been given to you at no cost to you, but at cost to Christ. So as you come, let this 
Let the elements, let the body and the blood of Christ heal you from the inside out. If you need time to pray, come up here and pray. That's fine. If you need time to meet with God, you meet with God. Accept the communion and meet with God. Or if you just want to come and pray, that's fine with me too. But this is a God who loves you and would do anything for you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we're thankful that you see us for the good. We're thankful that you call us to be what you've created us to be. And we're thankful that you're a God that not only that, that doesn't sit off in the distance, but, but rather meets us where we are and moves us into this relationship with you. So Lord, this morning, I'm praying for those here this morning who find themselves in difficult situations. I'm praying for those who are in desperate need of your restoring love. Which, quite frankly, is all of us. May we come this morning with our hearts warmed, with our minds open, and may we receive your forgiveness, receive the sacrifice that has been given for us. Lord, we love you and we praise you this day. 